Ethan Webb is an architect who has been focusing on the innovative use of material in architecture. Throughout his career in Arnold, Foster & Partners and Hathaway, he has been working on over 30 brickwork and terracotta projects around the world. Many of these projects he has been working on have received national and international awards for architecture and sustainability. Peter's love for clay started when he was looking at using building materials sourced locally. He used to dig out clay from his backyard and started building models out of it. For him, the process of digging out clay and simply firing it in a kiln to create some of that can last for 100 years was simply magical. And to me about brickwork and working with clay is the immediacy of it all. You can simply dig into the ground and generally just below the soil level you'll find a deep bed of clay. Um, and there are different geologies and different types of clay over around the UK. Um, and that's quite an interesting starting point really because if you travel around the UK for example in different towns and villages you'll see the colour of the buildings change and that's generally reflected um, in the geology. So generally in the 18th century or earlier, people would only really use materials from the local site, given the challenges of transporting materials around. So what you'll see is you'll know exactly where you are by looking at the buildings surrounding you. And that was a really sort of fascinating thing for me when I was doing my early studies in architecture and traveling around uh, London and other parts of the UK and seeing these sort of vernacular styles of architecture and the real use of local materials. Uh, but also each of them, each different area would have their own manufacturers and some examples are even more local than that. So in some cases in London, there were examples of where uh, builders would actually dig a clay, they dig a clay pit often on site itself um, and make a temporary kiln and fire all the bricks for the housing on site. So there was no real material transport at all. The buildings were made from the ground that they sat on. And that was a really sort of interesting um, interesting thing to, to sort of learn about really because um, it's very relevant in today's society where we're in a, a climate emergency and we're transporting materials all around the world all the time. And really the carbon footprint of that activi activity and the embodied energy associated with that uh, has a huge impact on the environment. But here we were, 100 odd years ago, doing things very sustainably. Now, that kind of uh, thinking is coming back around today. But um, what I'm going to really talk about further is a little bit about the manufacturing techniques that are used to build bricks or make bricks. So generally what was happening, or those early builders or the now more regionalized brickwork manufacturers, um, what they would do is they would be a local clay pit. They would uh, excavate out the clay and mix it with um, pre-fired bricks. So the bricks that were duds in the manufacturing process, they would crush up and put them back in with the clay and that would be mixed together. And the reason for doing that is to stop the shrinkage of the brick when it's drying. So that mixture is then 
That is then thrown into a mold generally that was just this the most common method of making bricks back in the 18th century where it was pretty rudimentary. It was simply a wooden box, box essentially with sand um, poured into the bottom. The clay was thrown into what was called the stock. That was the name of the box, which is where the term stock bricks come from and uh, turned out in the shape of a brick. And generally you just wire cut off the top of the brick and turn it out. Um, sometimes the box had a little um, triangular element inside it, which is what creates the, the cut out and the brick or the hollowed out part of it known as the frog. Um, and really that is the most common method of making hand-making bricks. There are general um, sort of evolution that has happened, particularly in the 20th century with more mass production techniques um, and the introduction of uh, wire-cut bricks or extruded bricks, which um, is essentially a machine which is a big cylinder with a big Archimedes screwed inside it and clay is loaded in one end and put under pressure by the big spinning screw. And then at the other end, there's a shape and the clay comes out in a long column and is formed into a, a, essentially a long rectangular thing called a slug and it's sliced up into bricks. Um, generally, these can be perforated, which is why you see some bricks with holes in them. Um, but yeah, at, at this point in time, I'd say about 80 to 90% of bricks are made in that fashion. Unfortunately, um, there's still some manufacturers, uh, for example, H.G. Matthews, um, who, who still manufacture bricks in the traditional way. But the next point about making bricks is obviously the firing process. Um, and so you have your formed brick um, in the mass production form. It is generally, it goes through a tunnel kiln on a, a essentially a railway cart that moves just visible enough to see and it goes through a, essentially a long tunnel with the highest temperature in the middle and it gets goes from starts off heats up like a loaf of bread and gets really really hot to about um just under a thousand degrees and then cools down at the other end and it's kind of it's just it's very hot to touch at the, at the when it comes out the other side but it can be just dehacked and uh, loaded into onto pallets and taken to site um so that's the more mass production the more uh, kind of cottage industry of making bricks is there's different types but some there's still manufacturers making bricks with wood, which are wood fired so in in a kiln um, which is fired by timber and that gives an amazing sort of effect to the base of the brick and gives you a sort of um because the char the charcoal from the timber actually sticks to the face of the clay and gives you a sort of glossy appearance so there's certain bricks that get made like that other ones are in, um, in more rudimentary kilns where essentially they stack the bricks in a huge mass um, and light a fire underneath them. And the fire chases through the stack of bricks or pre-fired bricks um, and burns along, essentially in a long linear form. And as the fire reaches the end, yeah, the pre-fired bricks can be dehacked and then the process is rever it goes circular, so you can continue to keep a fire going as it moves down from one side, it, you take the fire bricks out, and then you can load the unfired bricks and it can work in that method. So 
that's a bit on the kind of manufacturing side of it. There are variations of that and architectural terracotta I'll very quickly touch on is more where you take a clay element and you cast it in a plaster mold to make more intricate clay forms. Um, and you can see a lot of these sort of castings around London um, where you, for example, in the Natural History Museum where they've got uh, ornate carvings of, um, of uh, nat natural uh, habitats and animals um, on the facade. So you can really make any form you like. Um, you can cast it as in liquid or you can press it with your hands. Um, it's a very uh, malleable material. Um, so there's, there's different forms that it can take. The other side to it is once you've made your brick, you can actually do another process to it and you can glaze it. Um, and that's a kind of, that's a real artist uh, kind of way of working. And a lot of brickwork studios have um, ceramic artists that work with them um, to create custom glazes uh, and finishes. So you, you'll know or you you may be aware of some of the uh, London tubes, for example, and the, the famous sort of deep red. Uh, those are all glazed tiles. And the amazing thing about using glazing in, in an architectural form, and you can also glaze bricks, of course, but the main thing about it is that it's colour fast. So because you're using natural ingredients and natural pigments, um, and they're vitrified onto the surface being heated at a high temperature. They're colour fast and there are examples from Iran uh, which are, you know, over 2,000 years old of glazed bricks that haven't discoloured or haven't aged. And you, you compare that to modern uh, methods of construction, say steel or ubiquitous aluminium cladding, where your paint systems, etc., on aluminium cladding, for example, uh, do tend to fade after about 20 years. We've got examples where the colour just does not fade and will, will, will last almost indefinitely. I used to work for a company called Arab, who's a large engineering firm, and I got involved with um, using bricks probably in the early 2000s when it was particularly unfashionable. Architects weren't particularly interested in using bricks in architecture. They were focusing on the high textile of the day and um, glass and steel structures. Um, no one was particularly interested in using this sort of perceived to be um, backward material. Um, but I thought it was also had its sort of magical properties of something that just came from the earth that could be dug out and formed into any shape you like. Um, and so I started to sort of work in that area and worked for the materials team in, within the company. Um, and one of the first jobs I worked on was a, a job called Turn Mills with an architect called PSC and Co. Um, and they had come up with this idea where they were using rusticated long format bricks, which is partially inspired by some of the work that Peter Zumter um, was doing, uh, an architect based in Europe. Um, where they were using Roman format bricks, which are long, thin bricks, but in a very rusticated fashion. So these bricks uh, were handmade, and the manufacturer who makes those particular bricks, of course, there's many different manufacturers, but this particular one 
um, used to put their thumbprint into the back of the brick and that was a signature mark and the face on the face of the brick once it'd been manufactured they used to put on gobes which is a form of glaze but it's it's matte and it's um, just use, instead of using pigments they use colored clay that's sort of splattered onto the surface and that creates a, a really quite beautiful finish so here we were um, producing this building in the middle of London a poet nearing sort of an area where there's a few sort of glass towers and things and we were really um, using these very rudimentary handmade bricks and one of the great things that the architect did was that it was actually beneath the site itself was actually a Roman ruin and the mortar colours that were used and the colours of the bricks were all taken from this particular um, ancient site below um, or adjacent to where there was some of this exposed Roman wall and they used that for the inspiration for the colours um, and created quite a beautiful facade um, of these stacked bricks. But there were, as working more on the engineering side of it, there are challenges to building um, brickwork in contemporary construction, notably being um, drivers for commercial glass ground floor planes where you uh, want as much visibility for tenants. So we sort of had to, in that instance, use a concrete structure and then use the brick as a sort of shell around the outside of the building and then wrap it in insulation with windows um, to meet the thermal requirements of the day. Uh, another project that sort of evolved from that was uh, the Royal College of Pathologists with Bennett's Architects. Um, and that again was using a, a handmade brick um, produced in the UK and uh, essentially those bricks we wanted to try and use more traditional masonry i.e. make the brick come to ground and we were able to achieve that and really how we got how we managed to get to convince the client and the builder to do it with this method um, was by proving that it could outperform, outperform thermally being so if we could have a load bearing facade that came to the ground a traditional stack brick wall essentially that was just restrained back to the primary structure we could then wrap the whole thing in a fleece um, and insulate it and thermally break it so essentially in winter you can keep the building warm and in summer you can keep it cold um, so that was sort of taking the traditional use of a brick and and using it in a more contemporary way. Some of my early research was using it in a more adobe form. So rather than firing the clay, you can dig it out from the ground and mix it with straw or um, other sort of local local things available, grasses, etc. And uh, you can use it... Um, in adobe structure so there's there's obviously there's round earth you can also extrude so the same method as making bricks where you extrude a long thin column of clay but instead of firing it you can use it as is and some of that that was an idea that i sort of took on and started to form um, buildings or um, prototypes for buildings where we, we i was curving the clay as it came out off the production line and using that to form a building on site. And I was speculating at the time with the sort of 10 years ago, 3D printing was something that was hasn't really sort of come into fruition yet. 
on a large scale and I was speculating that we could potentially extrude clay from a site and form buildings on site. And really this area of um, research has been really kind of fascinating and there's a few companies that have started trying to make these machines and trying to make this work, um, which has been really exciting to see. So for example, there's a company in in Italy called Wasp who have just manufactured the first sort of prototype for a extruded Adobe house or 3D printed earth houses. Um, there's also the work that Ronald Real's doing in America with he's created a house called Casa Cavida, which is made in a very similar uh, method um, using a company called Potclays who manufactured the machine to do it where he's dug out um, clay from the local from the local area and extruded it to form to form buildings. And really why it's relevant I'm talking about this today is um, I think that technology is kind of caught up and there's a real opportunity to um, to sort of roll out on a mass scale um, and provide low cost sustainable housing or buildings um, built with that method. And that's something that's kind of really exciting um, at this point in time and something that can uh, be pushed further as, as the sort of technology catches up. Um, and But the nice thing about it is once the building is complete, it will function very well. It has a very good thermal mass. Um, but you can also mix in, say, classic Avita, for example. I think there is um, natural ventilation put into the walls of that, um, which is also possible. Um, but alongside with that, it's there's been sort of other speculations that have happened where people have begun to speculate that. Um, and how to, on how you would say build on another planet, for example, Mars. So there's been numerous architectural competitions to construct buildings in space. And of course, people, the ideas that have come about have been focusing on using the material that's say on the moon or on Mars to build dwellings out of because of the cost of transport. And what's kind of interesting to, to my mind is you can draw parallels of if you imagine your site is in space and you can only use the materials around you, you're going to build something that's super local and you're not having to expend huge amounts of fuel getting getting things and materials into space. You can use what's around you. Um, and if you think about that pro, that sort of analogy of, of localism and using using materials that are available around the site, you can, there are a lot of benefits from it. And that's the sort of message I like to take away. And, and soil and earth and buildings are a really interesting example of that, where you're not having to transport um, materials from manufacturers all around the world. You can generally source things quite locally. The other side is, is when you think about it, you compare building using bricks to com to compare, say, with concrete, for example, and the embodied energy in concrete is huge. You've got the material excavation, you've got the cement production, which um, again is heated to higher temperatures than than bricks. Um, it also then, once in the curing process, gives off a second wave of CO two, 
Um, so it's more than double the CO2 when compared to a brick for the same material volume. So this is why I think it's relevant to start revisiting or, or looking and using more of these sort of materials in construction. Um, and that's one of the sort of message I'd like to take everyone home is just to think, well, if you're producing, you're a client for a building or you're working with a builder or you're a designer, um, just think what's available around you um, and what you can, what resources you can utilize that are actually really, truly sustainable. This podcast is brought to you by Wendy Teo and Eliza Colin as part of the Narrative of Soy Research Project. This research project is funded by British Council Connection Through Culture. <laughs>